Yeah. So, wanted to explore a little bit around the earth element. And uh, as I looked into kind of thinking about what this might look like, I found all sorts of things that I didn't expect to find, which is one of the great delights of the study and practice jam or the study and practice um, mode that we, we've been sort of exploring together, developing together and sharing with others. Our idea for these sessions was to do some kind of unusual things, do a little storytelling, maybe share a little kind of more traditional Dharma talk, and uh, possibly also introduce some rituals that incorporate these elements or reflect the way that they can be useful in our practice. And so my ambition is to do a little bit of all three of those today in 25 minutes. And uh, I'm hoping I can I can make that happen without rushing or, or seeming hurried. So I'll say this to begin with, which is that I was really struck last night in Diana's introduction and to the theme and also in the guided that she provided this morning by the idea that this practice with the elements is an invitation to turn inward toward our direct experience of our lives. Sort of as we might reach out and touch, make contact with the earth element. If we're sitting in a place where we can do that easily, if we're sitting in a chair, just noticing the pressure of one of your two feet, some people suggest the left foot on the floor. This making contact with our direct experience is the way we show up for ourselves. It's maybe the first, the fundamental step of self-compassion we take. It's just to pay attention to what it's like to be here now. And we have this invitation to look closely into something we think we're familiar with. And upon closer investigation, we find that our direct experience of it opens up this whole new world of, of understanding in which there's some freedom available. So I've got two main themes I want to explore um, around the earth element. The first one is that investigating the earth element, as we've been doing with the elements, uh, kind of in a mix today, and some of what I say will be true about each of them, but the earth element in particular provides a way to comfortably ground our experience in a constantly changing world gives us an appreciation for the power of cultivating stability in our practice in the midst of change and letting both of these things, inviting both of these things into our practice. The second thing I'd like to sort of talk about and maybe introduce a ritual, and if I run out of time, my plan B is to introduce the ritual uh, at nine o'clock in the final meditation of the evening. Might be kind of nice there. Um, And that is the idea that when challenges arise in our meditation, when we feel like we're ready to get up off the cushion, pack up our bags, head home from retreat, or just, you know, go eat the next cookie, go binge watch the next uh, Netflix series, whatever, that making contact with the earth element, however we choose to do it, um, can help ground us when challenges emerge in our meditation. So those are the two themes. And, um, see see where we go 
But let me start with a story. This is a story that goes like this. Um, a practitioner, a disciple of the Buddha named uh, Lakunda Kapadia. Lakundika means dwarf. Um, so-called because of his short stature and possibly because he wasn't very attractive. At least he didn't conform to the conventional beauty standard for men of his time. Um, very good-natured bhikkhu, known for his wonderful voice, actually, even though he was short, and some said ugly. And younger monks would often tease him by pulling his nose or his ears or patting him on the head. <clears throat> they would jokingly ask him, Uncle, how are you? Are you happy? Are you bored with your life here as a, as a monastic? Lakuntika Baidya never retaliated in anger or abused them. In fact, even in his heart, he did not get angry with them. When told about the patience of Lakundaka Badia, the Buddha said, an arahat, fully awakened being, never loses, never loses their temper. They have no desire to speak harshly or to think ill of others. They're like a mountain of solid rock. And as a solid rock is unshaken, so also an arahat is unperturbed by scorn or by praise. And then the Buddha spoke the following verse. What we have is the verse, and this is the backstory provided later. This is a verse from the Dhammapada, verse 81. As a mountain of rock is unshaken by wind, so also the wise are unperturbed by praise or blame. You might think praise and blame aren't such important things. But here, as frequently elsewhere in the texts, they refer to our concern with ourselves, what other people we think think of us, or how we might appear to others. And the implication is, if we're strong, like the earth element here invoked, we uh, can be more sure of ourselves in the world, less concerned perhaps about self-aggrandizement or defending ourselves. This talk was probably a little shorter, but then last night, Diana brought up the awakening poem of Uttama, I think, Uttama. And um, that reminded me that Lakundaka also has an awakening poem. We taught a course on the awakening poems a couple few years ago, and uh, wonderful experience to explore these things. And I found this, which I just thought fit into our theme, and although it's a slight digression, You'll see how it's related. I'm not going to read all of it, but this is, this is Lakundaka Badia speaking in his own voice. Some delight in clay drums, in arched harps, and in cymbals. Probably means bowed harps, arched harps. But here, at the foot of a tree, I delight in the Buddha's teaching. So others are out partying, watching Netflix. I'm, 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 I'm loving sitting here. In the Buddhist teaching, if the Buddha were to grant me one wish and I were to get that, get what I wished for, I'd choose for the whole world constant mindfulness of the body. Those who've judged me on appearance and those who've been swayed by my voice, they don't know me. Not knowing what's inside, not seeing what's outside, the fool shuts in on every side and gets carried away by the voice. Not knowing what's inside, but seeing what's outside that is, his ugliness or his stature. 
seeing the fruit outside, they're also carried away by my voice. But understanding what's inside, seeing what's outside with unobstructed vision, with clear seeing, they don't get carried away by the voice. The gloss I would provide for this last section in, in reference to the earth element would go something like this. Understanding the earth element, both internally and externally, as we've been doing today, seeing it with clear sight, seeing it clearly, we don't get swept away by conceptual imaginings. Or perhaps we're not as easily swept away by conceptual imaginings. So I think this interpretation, that little gloss of the poem, fits well, aligns well with the Buddhist take on what was even then a common idea of elements making up the world, accepting that they could be a, a way of understanding the physical world and the body. The focus becomes how the exploration of them can be a way into our world of experience. And that this is the world that the Buddha cared about. He said a lot or said in important times and important ways that it's this body that's the world. And it's this world of experience in which we can seek and expect to find freedom. So just like other frames of reference um, in the opening poem were mentioned, the teachings of Patachara, the teacher, the elements, the sense bases, the elements, just like these other frames of reference, these are aspects of our experience that if we bring mindful awareness to them, as we've been experimenting with today, they have the potential to strengthen our practice rooted in direct experience instead of concepts and open it up in new and delightful ways. That at least is my sense of, uh, sense of what I heard during the, the check-ins during uh, our elements meetings earlier. So we've, we're exploring a couple ways to, um, to work with the earth element, disaggregating our experience into component parts. That's kind of what we're doing today. Making our meditation equanimous like the elements, which is something I'll introduce in the guided meditation tomorrow morning. And a third one that I'll get to in a moment, I hope. But let's just take a little bit closer look at what we've been doing today. We wanted to do it first and then talk about it later. The words, the commentary, the descriptions, the concepts come after it. We want to start with the practice. And as we did in our sessions with you, keep directing attention back to, well, what, what's, what's happening here? Uh, well, maybe even what's happening here before words get added, before the mind starts getting too involved, adding concepts or uh, even labels, but just... What's it like to be alive in this kind of sea of things that we can separate out into elements, but we come to see as very complicated and quite wonderful. Diana quoted Majjhima 10, the Satipatthana Sutta, to say that a mendicant, a practitioner like us in this case, examines their own body, whatever its placement or posture, according to the elements. In this body, there is the earth element the water element, the fire element, and the air element. After a simile, this brief passage, kind of telegraphic, sometimes you have to, it's, it's like you have to add water <clears throat> to get the full teaching to blossom. Um, the sutta continues, 
And again, we, I guess, didn't want to give this away, but it, the next phrase of the sutta, the, a phrase that repeats throughout the Satipatthana Sutta, says, And so we meditate observing <clears throat> these aspects of the body, these four elements, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And then it says, We meditate observing the body as liable to originate, as liable to vanish and is liable to originate and vanish. Many of you in the check-ins noticed in your practice today that as we notice these elements, both internally and externally, we notice that they're changing. <laughs> and the implication is, this is how the body is. It's not, it's never fixed. It's never stable for long. It's always changing. So it seems to me there's three main benefits of this practice of taking things apart, teasing things apart. We come to see that what we perceive as being external and internal are actually have the same quality. And several of you in my group commented on that. The body's composed of the same physical elements as the outside world. And as we recognize this commonality, Boundaries start to loosen up. The things we create or the mind imposes between inside and outside, subject and object, me, you, self, others. We also come to appreciate this element of change, that the external earth element might be rock. Um, We appreciate that it has myriad forms and that it changes. So it may be rock, soil, dust, iron, silicon, carbon, other minerals. It falls down, it crumbles, blows apart, blows away, decays. And likewise, the internal earth element made up of, I'm just making this up here. We have physical scientists on the team, um, but I'm going to say calcium, potassium, sodium, things like that. This body, the internal earth element, takes many different forms. In our experience from the tug of war we feel when we do the walking meditation between our body stretching and moving and the, and the gravity pulling us back down to sort of pulling and tugging at our internal architecture, the firmness of the cushion, the stiffness of the body after sitting for 45 minutes, there's the changing in intensity of what we're aware of, um, and there's the decaying and weakening that we can sense in the body. So although we consider these separate things for the purpose of analysis, one of the things we come to appreciate is that they're interrelated processes. A third thing, and we'll continue to look into these things, is we start to notice how much we are in the habit of adding concepts to our direct experience. Maybe we start to get a sense of, oh, this is direct experience, this is the mind adding something, this is a concept being imposed. Not that these are bad things, but just that that is an aspect of our experience. So we can make use of this awareness of the earth element, the settledness of it, of our experience, the stability, the weight of the body, teasing out this earth element from the holistic experience of the body to ground of our practice. And also, at the very same time, 
we can use connection with it to embrace the changing, shifting, eroding, blowing, sliding away nature of the earth element as it appears around us and within us. So we can be firmly grounded at home in our element, even as we embrace a constantly changing world. This is one of the wonderful things about this practice. On a small level, we might say it it helps us be comfortable in the inevitable discomfort of our world. And that can be a very profound thing to be comfortable in the, in, at the same time that we embrace the things we're most afraid of. So I'll finish this section by just rereading that portion of the, of, uh, the Dhammapada, verse 81. As a mountain of rock is unshaken by wind, so also the wise are unperturbed by blame or by praise. So let me say something about touching the earth. This is standing in for the earth in my backyard, actually, but uh, it'll do because it's hard, firm. It's a reminder of that aspect of experience. And I'm going to talk, seeing the time on my watch, I'm going to talk about this a little bit, and then we'll do we'll, we'll do this as part of that nine o'clock. We'll, we'll kind of begin that meditation period with a little bit of a of a ritual touching in with the earth. So another story, and this is one of a, a very common story that comes down to us, that on the, the night of his awakening, the Buddha was challenged, probably by internal demons or internal uncertainties, but also by a figure called Mara, a personification or an allegorical representation of death or of indolence, laziness, hindrances, negligence, and things like that. He's attacked by Mara. Sometimes there's Mara's daughters come in and tempt him with various temptations. He holds firm and um, reaches out at one point and touches the ground. You can watch me doing it, but it's done here, too. This is the gesture. The Bhumi's Parsha. And the... Um, I thought this would be a simple thing to explain. I find a sutta passage, I read it to you. And what I discovered... I'm glad my colleagues are sitting down because I think it it probably won't come as a surprise to them, but this gesture is not in the suttas. Um, Even the interactions with Mara don't appear in the suttas that give us the Buddha's life story and the story of his um, awakening. Texts like Majjhima Nikaya 36, Majjhima Nikaya 4. Whenever Mara comes up, it's in verse. And it's a lot of it's found in the Mara Samyutta of the Samyutta Nikaya. This is where we're getting a little studyish. So I looked through those, and I found again and again, although the Buddha isn't shown touching the ground, and this doesn't turn up in art until about the third or fourth century CE, that there are many references to the earth element as he um, as he confronts Mara, as he confronts the forces of. Um, that would move him away from practice and move him away from the past. And we can tell that Mara is familiar to all of us because this is how the Buddha describes his hosts in, in verse. And I'm not going to, as uh, as Diana pointed out, this the poetry is lost in the translation here. But the Buddha says, your first squadron, speaking directly to Mara, is sense desires. Your second is boredom, then hunger, then thirst, Craving, sloth and torpor, cowardice, uncertainty, malice, obstinacy, gain, honor, renown, praise, and blame. 
or praise, I guess. But I will sally forth to fight you. And I may I won't be driven forth from my post. So this makes to me a reference to the earth of this firm post planted in the ground, and the Buddha's uh, letting Mara know that he won't be moved. For he says, I have faith, I have confidence in this practice, I have energy in my practice, I have wisdom too. So all your squadrons with all your gods behind you cannot defeat me. And I will break with wisdom your evil as a stone breaks a clay pot. And there too we have some earth element and a little violence, it's true. So the recurring idea behind these episodes of confrontation with Mara is that doubts, anxieties, the things we're all familiar with as meditators, the Buddha's no different from us sitting there on the night of his, uh, in, at least is no different in that he, is, he too has these challenges in his meditation, doubts, anxieties, longings, temptations. But he has also the firm resolve, and in the verses he evokes the earth element, its hardness, its firmness, its stability. And when he does so, those temptations and um, challenges vanish, and Mara vanishes into air, leaving the Buddha firmly on the ground. When challenged by Mara's daughters with temptations, and they show up, by the way, allegorically, three daughters as craving boredom and lechery, and the Buddha rejects them with a series of well-chosen similes, in all of which the earth element figures prominently. He says, Fools, you have tried to split a rock by poking it with a lily stem. You've tried to dig a hill out with your nails, to chew up iron with your teeth, to find a footing on a cliff with a great stone upon your head, to push a tree down with your chest. So we'll do this briefly now. I just feel like we must, but we'll do it again at nine. But I think we can reach out and touch the the, the nearest earth, uh, the nearest earth element you can find with your foot or a hand. Doesn't matter what it is. It works. The magic works, even if uh, we don't, we're not touching the bare earth. And just take this as a way to 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 reconnect with your direct experience of the world. I'm finding it's helpful to close my eyes. All sorts of things come up in the mind when we meditate. But this is a reminder of the, of the transformative power of our direct experience of life. And I, I'm going to pull my hand back up now. You're welcome to. We'll return maybe for a little bit longer this evening. But I sit a lot outside and I do this regularly. I do even if there's not a big challenge because it can be a very supportive way to support your practice. Just feel the earth. Maybe it's warm, maybe it's cool, but you're there with your direct experience of things. So I recommend it to all of you. Whether or not the historical Buddha actually did this, <laughs> um, for which we don't have evidence in the texts, it's a natural extension of this use of the earth element that turns up again and again in this imagery in the verses natural extension of that um, encouragement to be directly in touch with our experience.
So when distractions and temptations, hindrances arise, we can ground ourselves in this way. I'm going to finish. I have a, a, a long-standing like commitment to always finishing on time. It's kind of a problem, but I, I just I, f- I feel like I should ask for additional couple minutes, although you're kind of a captive audience. I don't want to abuse you, and I know you've been sitting for an hour. So let me finish with just a final story that I find poignant, moving, and um, maybe some, a, a use of the earth element that tells us something really valuable about this practice. Uh some of you know, maybe, uh, that in Diga Nikaya 16, another important uh, discourse in helping us understand the Buddha's life, it's the discourse in which the Buddha dies. Uh, when he's dying, when it becomes clear that he's dying, his attendant Ananda approaches him weeping. We taught a course on this too, Diga Nikaya 16. Um, approaches him weeping and says, you know, and the Buddha says, the Buddha says, didn't you get what I said? All things pass. And um, this Buddha too, this, this human too. Um, but Ananda weeping says, when you're gone, who will be our teacher? Who will be the leader? Who will be the teacher? Who will be the leader of the Sangha? And the Buddha says in a famous passage, the Dhamma is your teacher. So just a few, a very short time after the Buddha's death, between 268 and 232 BCE, there was a ruler in the area that the Buddha had taught in named Ashoka. And taking this wisdom to heart, whether he knew it or not directly, he had not stone statues of the Buddha produced. We don't get statues of, the, of a person who looked like the Buddha until several, several centuries after the Buddha dies. But Ashoka committed to stone the Dhamma. Um, we don't have them all. Many of the stone edicts and the pillars have turned into dust, been buried, broken apart, used for foundations of houses, turned up in temples, buried. We don't know how many hundreds there were. Fourteen rock edicts remain and about seven rock pillars. And in them you can read, usually fragmentary, um, references to the Dhamma that we know and practice here, now. One of them, the stone edict number seven, says this, Beloved of the gods, Ashoka, King Ashoka says, wherever there are stone pillars or stone slabs, there this Dhamma edict is to be engraved so that it may long endure. It has been engraved so that it may endure as long as my son's great-grandsons live and as long as the sun and the moon shine, so that the people may practice it as instructed, for by practicing it, happiness can be attained in this world. I love about this that it's, a, again, a way of trying to ground the Dhamma in something of the earth element. But stone crumbles. Stone turns to dust. People find better and different uses for stone, like propping up their houses. So the stone turns into dust, but the Dhamma endures. So let's just sit for a minute.
Thank you.